0: I've covered reaching millennials and all of that. And so today, I I yesterday, so that today I could share my testimony. Uh, And my testimony is relevant to church growth because, uh, you know, it it was a way that God saved my life and through 12 step recovery and other things. And I think we can learn a lot. From your AA and your NA and your different groups of their inclusiveness and in the way that there we go ah uh, and and so that's important and that's why I share this every uh, you know when you watch Jesus you see. That the people on the margins were attracted to Jesus. The sinners sought Jesus out. The, 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 the rednecks, the hillbillies, the, the whores and the hotheads and the dopeheads, they all, they, they just migrated to Jesus. And, and these people were, were set free by Jesus. And I believe the church should be a place where sinners want to come to when they're ready to get help. Amen. And uh, I, I believe strongly in this, and I believe the church should be a hospital for the sinners. It is not a museum for the saints. And so, uh, I'm going to share a little bit of my testimony with you today, uh, and I just praise God for all the presentations I've been with you this week. It's been a pleasure. I hope I can come back to the Carolina Conference at some time. Think. if you've enjoyed it, thank Glenn Altamatt who who invited me here. Uh, make sure you tell your your, your leadership here in Carolina Conference, and, and just praise God for the opportunity. So, let's, uh, let's begin. Uh, my presentation today is called uh, Stand Up. Uh, stand Up. Let me see if I can... Uh, it, Glenn, I need to put my... Right here. It's the little receiver. Sorry about that. And uh, we'll plug that in. Just in the USB port there. Perfect. Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious God, we thank you and we praise you for the awesome God that you are. For all that you have done and all that you are doing. I thank you for each person here. I I thank you for the Carolina Conference and for this camp meeting. Lord, I'm praying that all of this information, which is, is good, will become incarnation. The Word will become flesh and blood and it will touch the lives of people that we live with that we go to school with, that we work with, that we go to church with. We we need more than information. We need transformation, Lord. I pray that You will give us greater faith to take chances. That we will go home not discouraged, but empowered. That we can start right where we are with what we have. That I may not be where I want to be, but hallelujah, I'm not where I used to be. I pray that You would empower each person here with the Holy Spirit, May we leave here as new people today because we've been with Jesus. In His name we pray, Amen. Stand up. You know, one day I was reading in the book of Acts, and book of Acts is a powerful book when you want to see what the church can do when it's filled with the Spirit and on fire for Jesus Christ. And I was reading, and and, and as I started reading Acts, a verse jumped out at me. Acts 1.15, it said, In those days Peter stood up among the believers. And then you keep reading, and you get to Acts the second chapter, and it says, but Peter's standing with the eleven. And as you're going through Acts there in the very beginning, you keep running into it. Uh, Peter stands up, and Peter's standing with the eleven. And it just jumped out at me. Why is it significant that Peter's standing? Well, it's significant because Peter was always the guy who was falling. Alright, it's, it's significant because Peter was always the guy who was failing and falling. And you see it throughout the Gospels. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, "...could you not watch with me for one hour?" When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out. And Peter said to him, "...even if I must die with you, I will not deny you." And all the disciples said the same thing. And yet he denied his Savior." But when you get to the book of Acts, something has happened to Peter and he's no longer falling. Now Peter is standing for the Gospel. And that is a powerful picture. Amen? And the thing about Peter is, is once Peter stood up, he stayed up, and you couldn't get Peter to shut up. And that's that's the place I've come in my life. You know, that's where I'm at. Uh, I want to get to that point in my faith that once I stand up, I stay up. When we, once we stand up for the message of God's truth, that we stay up for the message of God's truth. But too often, if we're honest, our Christian experience is a series of standing ups and sitting back down. We, stand, we come out to camp meeting and we're on fire. Stand up, only to go back home and start sitting again. We go to the marriage seminar and we stand up for our marriage only to go back home and and, and sit back down. Our our life spiritual experience often is a series of standing up and sitting back down. But I am praying and I'm challenging you today that by the grace of God, you can stand up and you can stay up. That you'll keep uh, sharing the gospel. Some of you have shared how the harvest has not yet come from your evangelistic efforts. Keep on trying. Keep on standing up for the truth of God's Word. Keep on standing up for your marriage. Keep on standing up for your community. Now, when you first encounter Simon, uh, before he becomes Peter, his name is Simon. Simon's name is a derivative from Simeon. Now, we know that Peter means what? Stone. Rock. Uh, but when Jesus calls Peter, is Peter a rock? Is he a stone? No, no, no. Peter is not a rock when Jesus first calls him. Um, and so his, when He first calls him, his name is Simon. Many times we are not rocks of our Christian faith e- either. Um it's not easy for us to stand up either. Peter was not a rock in the beginning. As we saw often in his life he was falling down. He would make these great declarations only to to fall and to deny Christ. Um the reason why it's so hard for us to stand up for the gospel, stand up for the truth, or maybe stand up for people, or stand up in this world is because we live in a broken world, do we not? We live in a world that has fallen. Yeah, Revelation 14.8, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And that fall goes back to the very first fall. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. At the tree we see Adam and Eve fall fall, those before the flood fell, those after the flood fell, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Peter, John, they fell. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This book, when you you really look at this book, this book is filled up with the mess-ups of the messed up. And that's good because that means this book was written about you. Hallelujah. This book was written about me. It is a book, not of perfect people, but of broken people. And so the church should be filled with broken people. Amen? It's filled with broken people. Um, This book was written for me. Jesus spoke to the riffraff. Which is good news, because I was riffraff for much of my life. Jesus called the tax collectors. Jesus called the whores, the hillbillies, the hotheads, the dopeheads, the rednecks to be His disciples. Which is good news, because I have been a few of those things for much of my life. In fact, Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's what the church is called to be. That's what the church is supposed to be. A place. Where Jesus was a sinner magnet. Our churches should be sinner magnets. And we should magnetize broken people to our churches. Um our, we've got a camp meeting going on down at Georgia Cumberland right now at Southern. It's for three days. I mean, you know, we call it a camp meeting. It's not really a camp meeting. Um, but it's a, it's, it, is, it, is a, it is a wonderful program for a couple of days. But Ty Gibson is speaking there, and I've been following it uh, as I've been here at, at this camp meeting. And Ty Gibson had a, a powerful quote that he shared last night, and he said that the, the thing that has, um, the, the organization that has, has um, produced more atheists than anything else has sadly been the church. It's been Christians or, or self-proclaimed Christians. And you see it ever since before the Dark Ages, that spirit of Antichrist, that spirit and attitude of, of the lack of Christ, the lack of the humility of Jesus. We see that it's crept into the church and it has not left the church. Um, and so the reality is we need a lot of help. We need to get back to being like Jesus where we are calling sinners to repentance. When you study... Peter's story, um, you realize that it's your story. It's my story. I, I think that the reason why a lot of times people love Peter is because Peter speaks to us. I can relate to Peter. I shared with you the other day. I can relate to Peter. Peter had a big mouth and he had a small brain. I can relate to Peter. You know, Peter probably had the mouth of a sailor. I mean, he was a fisherman. Um, you know, I, I, I can relate to Peter because sometimes I, I, I put I say something and then I think about it and I've gotta go back and I gotta say, you know what, that wasn't right. I'm a bit of a hothead. All the halversons are hotheads and we got this temper that we've got to just really pray about sometimes. Because sometimes you just wanna reach out and touch someone, right? And so, and so, I've gotta be, been. I pray about that stuff, and and I'm telling you, the enemy uh, put a bullseye. With blessings comes bullseye from the devil. And the once God puts His calling on your life, the devil will come after you with a vengeance, and he'll come after our children, and he'll come after our family, and he'll come after our loved ones. I I, I can relate to Peter because most of my life uh, was a series of falling down and messing up. It wasn't always that way. I mean, I was born the son of an evangelist, Richard Halverson, the brother of Ron Halverson, the two preachers from the six, five boys, one girl in in that immediate family there. My father, uh, through Ron's conversion, he led my whole family uh, to their conversion, and we had many pastors come up out of that. Praise the Lord. And so Ron uh, led my father to Jesus and then, then my dad came to Southern and he went into the ministry and then met my mom and voila, here we are today. And uh, I, I remember growing up and doing evangelism, I mean that was in my DNA, from the moment I was a kid, I remember we would drive around in the fifth wheel trailer and that was my first home, we didn't have a home, we, we drove around in the fifth wheel trailer and, and went and did meetings, did about eight meetings a year. Um, all over the place in mid-America, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and we did meetings all through that Mid America part before we moved to Florida. And I met someone here from Clearwater, Florida, who who's not here now, but she was here earlier this week. And my dad pastored there, and so my dad did pastoral and evangelism. But I I grew up loving evangelism. I would help my dad with his slides, and and I, and I would help him. I would see people come forward and give their lives to Jesus. I would see lives changed. I knew from a very very young age, that evangelism, when done right, when we lift up Christ and, 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 and get people to fall in love with Jesus, all the other things fall into place. And I saw how that worked, and I fell in love with it. And I, man, I wanted to be a preacher when I grew up, just like uh, a couple of my sons are here with me today, and my youngest, um, Taylor, just graduated kindergarten. And they told the audience what he wanted to be, what they wanted to be when he grows up. And he said, I want to be a preacher like my dad. (laughs) I said, Hallelujah. We need at least one preacher to keep on the Halverson family business. And so that's what I wanted to do. I was like Taylor. But then I got into high school and things started to change for me. Um, In high school, I started making. Uh, worse decisions, you know. I, I have kind of the the typical generic story. There's not much different than the usual story. The the path of of kind of choosing uh, the wrong friends, and I had a lot of good friends too. But uh, my friends like me, we were we weren't going anywhere, and we were making poor decisions. And that's why I tell young people: you show me your friends, and I can tell you where you're going to be in the next few years. Um, because the reality is we, we become the people that we're surrounded with. And, and so I wasn't a, a good influence on them. They weren't a very good influence on me. And, and so we started kind of hanging out. And, and I started kind of absorbing things that I probably shouldn't have been absorbing. Watching stuff. Listening to stuff. I mean, that usual generic story. And so about my junior year in high school, you know, it, 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 I started getting kind of more into that party scene. Um, And every other weekend, it was about going to the next party. You know, the sad thing with addiction is what starts as a party eventually turns into a full-time job of desperation and pain. As I heard once told me, is in the beginning you use the drugs, but in the end, the drugs use you. And that's the exact truth. And so it was fun in the beginning, it was a party in the beginning, and my parents were out doing the Lord's work, and and that left me, you know, home, at the house, alone, you know, when the cats are away, the mice will play. And that's how it kind of went for many years. I barely graduated from high school, Uh, Highland Academy, hallelujah, I graduated. My daughter just graduated Bass Memorial Academy. I have an older boy who graduated a few years ago, but my daughter just graduated from Bass Memorial Academy as valedictorian. Hallelujah. I said, man, I, I, I graduated miracle-dictorian. Uh, she had all these uh, uh, ropes around her and chains and honors. I was like, "That was lucky they gave me a robe to graduate with. Um, so it was a miracle when I graduated. I get out of... Uh, high school, and I just continued on that road. Um, met my lovely wife, and, and, and we were, we were dating for a short time, and sure enough, my, my oldest son, um, uh, you know, find out my wife is pregnant, and, and, and suddenly reality, here I am, 18 years old, reality came crashing in, in a very real and vivid way. And so, uh, I, yeah, I got married, and, and hallelujah, I loved her, I knew I wanted to marry her, uh, but uh, the reality was, um, I was young and immature, and so I became a kid, getting ready to have a kid. Um, I've discovered something, and that is, there's no such thing as an unplanned pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a ridiculous phrase when you think about it, if, because if you're doing what it takes to get pregnant, you shouldn't be surprised. I'm pretty sure you are planning on a pregnancy. Um, and so that's kind of the reality that, that kind of hit me. And so I was 19, and I had my, my first child. I was a child having a child, and my life continued careening out of control. I started. I had to leave college. I dropped out of Southern, and, and, I, and I started working as a server and, in a restaurant. And, and that's never very conducive for people wanting to get clean, uh, it's very often a drug scene and a party scene as part of the restaurant business. And so uh, you can do it and stay true to God. I've got my oldest son serving in, in a restaurant and he's doing well, praise the Lord. But uh, for me, it was kind of a toxic combination. And and so every night, I was going out and partying with my friends. I mean, I did it before I was married. And I figured, you know, just because I'm married, why should that have to change, right? Um. And so uh, I would stay out late, and uh, the problem with staying out late, uh, I, I, I would eventually have to come home. And I remember one night when I was serving there at, at the restaurant, and and uh, I had some friends asked if I wanted to go out. This was kind of early in Brittany and I's marriage, and I said, "Well, yeah, why not?" And so I went out and stayed out till about midnight, one o'clock, and. And because uh, that's what I did when I was single. And so I, I came home and, and uh, got there, and she met me. She was so loving. She met me there at the door. Uh, and, and, and she met me with, How could you? She met me with, How, what, what were you thinking? Now, this, in my defense, this was the time before cell phones. All right, so I would have had to have physically have walked to the phone on there, but but uh, you know I know still no excuse, um, and and so she was there and she met me with how could you? I was worried. I, I why wouldn't you call? And I remember for a moment thinking, uh, and I luckily I thought it and didn't say it. I, I thought you mean I have to tell you everything. <laughs> Newlyweds, yes, you have to tell your spouse everything. And so, uh, and so that's how it kind of went for a while. And, and, and I just kept staying out, staying out. I kept sinking to deeper depths. And, and, and again, as addicts know, um, before long, the drugs start using you. And, and the thing is, you come to these crossroads where, where, where you, where you use and you have decisions to make. Either I continue using, and i and i or or i stop using and it's never i got i can't stop using i got to keep using and the problem is you got to sink to deeper lows and deeper depths and the things that you used to do to get the drugs aren't working anymore and interestingly it wasn't the it wasn't the street do- drugs i did plenty of those but then i gave those up and 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 then the devil if he can't get you one place he'll try to come in the back door of your life and then he came in through the back door of of Prescription pain medicine and opioids. And so, you know, and I justified it. You know, hey, the doctor wrote the prescription, so it must be okay. And I knew better than that. And so I, I kept abusing the opioids and and, and taking the drugs and and it kept getting worse and worse and worse until I was hopping from hospital to doctor, to doctor, to doctor. And you know, there were some days where I would have to go to about five different doctors just to get enough drugs to make it through one day. This is what. When you hear, uh, and the church should be on the forefront of the opioid crisis, we should be helping people, we should be informing people, we should be educating people. Because this is a very real reality. And I know I've got members come up to me, and I know you have family or friends or someone who struggles with addiction and, and who is being destroyed because of painkillers. Pain and so I, re, I realized the reality of, of that. And so our churches need to be places where we can help people. Um, so it kept getting worse and worse. Uh, And the thing is, again, you you have to sink to deeper lows to get the drugs just to get to where you used to be. And so, I started, um, the illegal behavior comes in. And the thing is, when you're using, and and some of us who don't struggle with addiction don't understand this, we often say, well, why don't you just stop? The problem is, when someone is caught up with addiction, it's an obsessive-compulsive spiritual disease That attacks a person. And some people hate that word disease. And when I call it a disease, I'm not saying that that gives someone an excuse to do it. What I'm saying is that addiction must be treated as a disease. Because if it is not, the person will not recover and they will not get better. They are messed up spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. Genetically, it is seriously a physical disease. And so we've got to get real about that, and 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 I experienced that firsthand, and so again, I started have I started acting out in the illegal behavior because to stop drugs was not an option for me, and it wasn't long, you know, you do the crime, you better be prepared to do the time, and so it wasn't long before um, I was arrested. Uh, the first place I was living in Nashville, Tennessee, the first place I was ever arrested was at a Kmart. You guys remember Kmart? K, B, Big K. It was like Walmart, but worse, right? And the and no, worst place to get arrested in. I didn't want to, get to be seen in Kmart. I definitely didn't want to get arrested there. Um, but I was walking out of Kmart, and, 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 and three squad cars pulled up right in front, and they handcuff me. They take me back to the pharmacy. They identify me, and there I was, uh, put into a squad car and taken to, taken to Nashville. And I remember thinking, man, my life is over. I'm doomed. And suddenly you start thinking, how in the world did I end up as a kid who wanted to be a preacher one day to now being a drug addict who is arrested and charged with a felony of prescription fraud. And so there I was thinking my life is over. I get to, I get to the holding cell. And, you know, addicts are master manipulators. If you know any addicts, you know how manipulating they can be. And I called my family, my sister... And told her to bail me. I didn't call my wife, you know. I, you know, I knew better than that. But I called my sister and, um, you know, lied to her. And, and, and she came and bailed me out, but she found out why I was there. And the first stop, because she, her and my brother-in-law said, Hey, Richie, let's go home. Don't worry about getting the car. But I knew I had to go use. I was addicted. And so the first stoplight, we stopped out, man. I jumped out the door and I went running. And I went right back out there to use. Um went right back uh, to the same dysfunctional living. And that's what my life was like for the next few years. Um, and, and in and out of treatment centers, in and out of jails and institutions, until I was finally living out of my car. My wife had kicked me out with good reason. She couldn't trust me. Um, no one could trust me. And so I was, I was living out of my car. It was Christmas time. I remember that. Um, I had just been kicked out of the halfway house I was staying at. Um, and uh, so I was just uh, kind of on my own. Um, I remember my parents got in touch with me. I had four felony charges at this time, over the course of about three years. Uh, four felony charges of prescription fraud. Uh, and and so I, a police officer, uh, I had... Uh, had gotten a hold of me at the halfway house and said, you need to turn yourself in, Richie, um, before I got kicked out and said, but, but wait till after the holidays because you're going to be going away for a, long, for, for a while. And so uh, I called my parents and I didn't know what else to do and they had helped me go to treatment so many times. I bankrupted my parents in and, and their desperate attempt to get me clean. But the reality is, is until the addict's ready to get clean, they will not get clean. And you can spend, the worst thing you can do is to keep them from hitting their bottom. And we've got people, you know, we, we will house the addict or we'll pay for the addict to get bailed out of jail. The best thing my mom ever did was let me stay in jail. It was not to provide a house where I could use and keep living there. And I'll hear parents look at me with kind of like, but they'll end up on the streets. Well, that's what it's going to take for them to get clean. That's what it took for me to get clean. And until they're living on the street, they're never, it's never going to sink in that they cannot use successfully. And so, I called my parents up, and in a last-ditch effort, my parents says, Richie, we'll send you to treatment one more time. And, and uh, I didn't want to go to any other treatment centers in Tennessee. I'd been to all of those a few times, and, and I wanted to just get away. Um, plus, they wanted to, to arrest me, so I wanted to get away. And so they flew me out to where my parents lived in in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. My dad was in a series of meetings in Twin Falls, Idaho, and they flew me out there uh, to to a little town. Well, I flew into Boise, and then the treatment center was in a little town of Gooding, Idaho. All right, I've talked with a few of you that said you just got like a one stop sign in your town. That's what Gooding, Idaho, was like. It had one stoplight. And there was nothing there. This was in the part of this was in in that high country part of Idaho, potato land. And it was it was New Year's Eve when I got there, and uh, it was like two below zero. It was freezing cold. And uh, the the treatment one of the representative from the treatment centers was there to pick me up at the airport. He picks me up and he drives me. I had used earlier that morning, but. I had gotten to where I was using so much, my tolerance was so high, that I was already getting sick from withdrawals after about seven hours of not using. And so, um, so as those started kicking in, I was getting to the, to the treatment center there in Gooding, Idaho. And what happened was that stinking thinking started up again. In, in, in recovery, we call it stinking thinking. And it's when we start talking to ourselves. Our disease, which I know is the enemy, the devil... Starts getting in your head and he starts trying to talk you into going back out and using. And he'll say things like, you know what, you can go out, you can use one more time. And you don't know what it's like. You see, for, for, for over a year I had kind of succumbed to the idea that I was going to die using. I had tried to quit. I had had some weeks, months of clean time that I had kind of gotten together, but I had not ever made and ever had any significant clean time over those years. And so I had just kind of succumbed to the idea that I was going to die using. Um, One of the times I was in treatment, the doctor said it's a miracle that I wasn't dead for the amount of drugs that I was using that my liver had not given out. Um... And so that stinking thinking started that first night when I got to Gooding, Idaho and started saying, man, you could sneak out and and, and you could you know just go through the window and, and go score some dope and sneak back in. No one will ever know you were gone, which is total insanity. Total insanity. I mean, there's alarms on the windows at treatment centers. And, and it was two below zero. And this was in the middle of an area that was just nowhere. And so... I, I started really contemplating that. And as I started to really think about, and I stood in the hallway, the one hallway, and I looked out at the door where I was going to walk out of there, AMA, and go back living on the streets because my parents and wife had been clear, you're not coming back to us. We're done. Um, and and so, but but in, in the most real voice I have ever hear, heard God uh, speak to me in the most, you know, real, literal, and I, and I don't think it was literal, but it was loud in my head, in, in the most audible voice I've ever heard God speak to me. He says, Richie, if you go out that door, you're going to die. Um, but if you, would, if you would give your life to me, then I will pick you up, I will turn you around, and I will put your feet on solid ground. And I came to that crossroads and, and for the first time in a very long time, I didn't make the wrong decision. I went back into my room in that small treatment center in Gooding, Idaho and I hit my knees and I I prayed to God for the first time in a long time. And I surrendered to God. And I said, Lord, you know, I don't know how to live, but, but I'm giving my life to you. And I did. And I have not looked back. Hallelujah. And I have been clean ever since. And God has done everything. He's done exceedingly more than I could have ever possibly imagined. And so I went through the treatment program. I was there for 30 days. I, I flew back to Seattle and I was there and I immediately started going to meetings. In treatment, they'll tell you if you, if you use drugs every day, you need to work on your recovery every day. If you use drugs every day, you gotta go to a meeting every day. If you use drugs every day, you gotta pray to God every day. You gotta get into the Word of God every day. You know, and so these were the things I had to get into new habits. If you don't create new habits, you'll fall into old habits. And that's the facts. That that's for anything in life, and so I started going to meetings. I I got home. My wife was there. I didn't know if she would come to pick me up. I told her when I was getting in. I was praying about it. I, I was sending her letters from the treatment centers. And 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 Hallelujah! Uh, she was there with my two kids at the time, uh, waiting for me, uh, two little kids at the time, uh, to pick me up at the airport and take me home. Um, she, we, we, I went to, I, I, I went to, to NA meetings every single day. I remember the first meeting I went into, and I had heard it before, but I'd never taken them up on it before. But they said you got to get a sponsor. You know, you don't know how to live clean, so you need someone who knows how to live clean. Sponsorship in twelve step recovery is the way the church should be doing discipleship. In meetings, you get a sponsor, and, and they're your mentor. They're someone you work through the steps with. They're someone you study the Bible with. They're people you can trust with anything. That's what we should have in the church. We should have sponsors, mentors, discipleship. The NA and AA are doing a better job at discipling people than we are doing at discipling Christians. And so that's what I did. And I, and I found a guy, and they said, look for someone who's working a program. Because, you know... Yes, and I hear some people, parents tell me, well, my kid tells me that, that in the meetings people are using. Let me tell you, that's like anywhere. If you look for trouble, you'll find it. But if you look for recovery and good people, you'll find that too. And in A, we used to always say that meetings are like a Pregoo sp- spaghetti sauce. Remember those old Pregoo commercials? They would say, it's in there. Right? They taste the onions. They're like, it's in there. It's all in there. Well, let me tell you, if you're looking for the dope, it's in there. But if you're looking for freedom and recovery and and God, it's in there too. So you, you find what you're looking for. And I was ready to find recovery. I wanted to live a new life. And so, man, I would have stood on my head if they told me to stand on my head. I didn't want to go back out there. And so I, I started listening to someone uh, who, who was working a program, who had a sponsor, who was working the steps, who was not just talking the talk, but walking the talk. And it was this big guy his name was Marvin, um, And uh, he, he was a big Harley driver. The guy had a tattoo from I mean, from head to toe, the guy had tattoos everywhere. But when he talked, I could tell. That this guy worked a program, and he was humble, and his story was like my story. And I went right up to Marvin. He had about 18, 19 years clean, and I said, Marvin, I want you to be my sponsor. And so he said, okay, well, call me for the next every day for the next 30 days. I want to get a call from you. Just check in. You, we don't have to talk a long time, but just give me a call and say, hey, everything's good, or hey, nothing's good, or whatever. Give me a call. I want you to start working the first step. Um, you know, uh, uh, we, we we that we you know that, that our, we had become uh, we had surrendered uh, to the idea that my, that I was powerless over my addiction and that my life had become unmanageable and come to terms with that reality. And so I started working the steps, and, and he was my sponsor. And uh, I, I I remember the first time I had to go to court. Remember, I had those four felony charges. Awaiting me, and now I had a failure to appear charge because I didn't make it to the court because I was in treatment, and so uh, I, me and my attorney, we, we get to the get to the judge, I get to the courtroom, and as soon as my name comes up on the docket, and they see that I'm there, you know, they arrest me, um, they take me into the back into a holding cell, to where I stay there until until my name is called in my court case, in which case they'll bring me back out. When I go into the back room, I see one of my friends that I used to go to school with, and who I used to do drugs with, and who I used to actually uh, buy drugs from, was sitting in the same holding cell. He was in this holding cell because at at his home... A home I had been many times before, and a home I had been at just a few weeks prior to this event. He was there, there was some kind of a party that was happening, someone pulled out a gun, someone was shot and killed, and he uh he was there uh and and, and they charged him with accessory to murder. And so I could have very well been in that same situation and been looking at the same type of sentencing, the same problem as he was. In the program we say, but by the grace of God, there go I. That could have been me. But by the grace of God, that wasn't me. And so I sat there and we just kind of look at each other and nod. And, and I, I go out, my name is called, I go out to the judge and the judge looks, you know, I'm drug tested, that comes back clean. Um, they say, you know, my, my um, attorney had talked to the DA and they saw how all of my charges, that in a very short amount of time, there were all those charges and how quickly. I wasn't really a habitual offender. They saw a definite start time when it started happening and only a couple of years to win the last charge. And so the judge said, Richie, you've, you've done treatment You're clean. It was about two months of being clean, which was a big deal for me at the time. And um, they said, if you can stay clean, we're going to put you on probation for the next two years. And if you don't get any more charges, uh, we're going to expunge all of these charges off of your record. So it's not just that I'm not going to have to do jail time, which is what I was looking at. They're going to actually take... And 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 what, what's nice about expunging them is, is it's as if you were never charged with anything. And so, man, you want to talk about experience God's grace. That's what God's grace is. That's what justification is. It, you know, when God forgives you, it's like, and He remembers those sins no more, it's as though you never sinned in the first place. And so I walked out of that courtroom in Nashville, Tennessee that day. And let me tell you, the the air uh, was never so fresher and sweeter. I could hear hear the birds singing. And it was so beautiful. Freedom is a precious thing. My friend went up and and, and he was sentenced with 25 years and is still serving out uh, his sentence. Um, Has not been able to see his boy um, getting older and and graduate from high school and college and get married and all these things that uh, could have been taken from me, um, but hallelujah, I stuck with that and and i 've been clean ever since and then uh, kind of a crazy thing is after I was clean for about five years i I went out with a friend of mine and i was I had gotten involved in printing and i I worked for Wilkes Publication and and we did printing for uh, Steps to Christ and Happiness Digest and, and I used to be a part of that and my heart started yearning for ministry. I wanted to get into the ministry but I thought that because of my past I had burned that bridge. And uh, so I, I did everything I could to do ministry without being a pastor, you know, but I really felt my heart wanting to be a pastor and I remember I went out to eat with one of my old friends from high school, Chris Louie. Uh, who is the son of the president of your conference, Leslie Louie. And we went to high school together. And uh, Catherine, his daughter and I, we went all four years to Highland together. And so uh, I went out to eat with Chris and I was talking to Chris and I just finished, graduated from Austin Peay State University with my bachelor. Of, uh, of corporate communications, and I was talking to Chris, and I said, hey, I'm really wanting to get involved in ministry. I, I'm really feeling God's calling me to, to ministry, and I'd love to, you know, do you know if there's anything, and and, and Leslie Louie was the Executive Secretary at Gulf States at the time, uh, and I said, do you think there's any way that I could uh, maybe do communications uh, for your conference, because I didn't believe I could do ministry. Do you think I could just be a communications guy or do something in the conference? You know, I don't care what it was. If they wanted me to be the janitor, I would be the janitor of the conference. I just wanted to serve God's church. And so I was talking to him and, 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 and we talked. We said goodbye. And I'll never forget. The next morning I get a call from Leslie Louie. And Leslie Louis says to me, he says, Hey, Richie, Chris told me that, that, that you're interested and you feel called to be a pastor. He didn't say anything about the communication. He just says, Chris told me you want to be a pastor. Man, I didn't miss a beat. And I said, Yes, I want to be a pastor. And, and he says, Well, we have a church here, uh, that, that, that we have an opening. And, and so then, uh, and Don Shelton, my first ministerial director, and Mel Isley, the first president, and all of them kind of get together. And they were look, looking at sending me to a, a very rural area in, in Mississippi, but decided, you know what? We think Richie should come to Montgomery. And I went to Montgomery, Alabama. It was my first district. Montgomery 1st, 7th Avenue Church. And, and that church was a beautiful church. And they mentored me, and I mentored some of them. and And because of my experience in the program... I'd like to say the church is what discipled me completely. But it was really the, it was really the, the people of Narcotics Anonymous, Anonymous that told me what loving people looks like. What really loving the undesirable looks like. Jesus says that if you love people who do good things for you, then what credit is that? You're getting something out of the arrangement. If you're around people because they make you laugh, you're not around them because you love them. You're around them because they make you laugh. They're enjoyable to be around. You want to know what real love looks like? Hang out with someone you don't like. <laughs> you want to talk about what real love is? It's reach out to someone who is not easy to love. And that's what I learned there in in, 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 in 12 Step Recovery. And I did end up coming back to the church. And, and I became an elder. And, and I was discipled by my local pastor. Highland Academy Church was the was the church that I came back to God in. Pastor David Hartman was my pastor. They're one of our professors now at Southern, and 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 they brought me back with a, a wel- welcomed arms, and they they got me involved in ministry. And so I praise the Lord for the church as well. Um, my my God, he he, he rescued my marriage. Uh, I've I, I've celebrated 21 years of marriage to my wife just this last January. I got four beautiful kids that hallelujah, my two oldest kids, I was already uh, making a lot of poor choices and they're making good choices for Jesus today. No, they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But hallelujah, they know Jesus who's perfect. And I want them to just fall in love with Jesus. I want them to know no matter how far away they fall, Jesus loves lost sheep. He'll leave the 99 to come after you. And I've never kept my story hidden from them because I want them to know that how the devil wants to take you out no matter what. And so most of my life was falling down, but finally God got a hold of me and I started standing up. When when you first when when Simon first receives his new name, Peter, I want you to think about that. He's not a rock, he's the furthest thing from a rock. He's weak, he 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 he's got a terrible temper, he thinks and, and he's selfish, he's not a rock. But then you realize his name at the time is Simon. Simon is derived from the name Simeon. Simeon means, you know what Simeon means? It means God has heard. That's interesting. Because Simon's name means God has heard. So Peter's name means rock. Simon means God has heard. So when you put their names together, his names together, Simon Peter, it means God has heard my prayer for a rock. You see, Peter was a prayer request in progress. Hallelujah. We are prayer requests in progress. My wife is, a, my mom and wife are prayer warriors. My mom is a prayer warrior. My mom, prayer, uh, she, she journals when she prays. And she's always told us kids that she's going to give us our, her prayer journals when she dies. My sisters have, like, you know, some volumes. She said, Richie, you're going to need an entire library. Um, and so, because I've worn my mom's prayer journals out, uh, and 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 so I'm I'm telling you, I'm a prayer prayer in in, in progress. Your kids are prayer requests in progress. Uh, Peter was a prayer request in progress. Um, and we all are, because none of us are standing the way we should stand, be standing. None of us are serving God the way we should be serving God. None of, us, none of our churches are doing evangelism and soul winning like we should be doing evangelism and soul winning. But the good news is that, that Simon means God has heard. You know, I think that every time Jesus saw Peter he, you know, fall, he remembered Peter's name, Simon. You know, God God has heard. Peter sinks in the sea. God has heard. Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. God has heard. When Peter chimes in, we left everything and followed you, Jesus. What do we get out of this deal? He's still Simon. But hallelujah, Simon means God has heard. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And this is what the enemy wants to do to every single one of us. He wants to do this to our spouses. He wants to sift our children like wheat. He wants to take you out. Um, But I have prayed for you. What does Simon mean? God has heard. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, that you'll be a rock. Uh, And when you have turned, I want you to strengthen your brothers. I want you to be a rock. You may not be a rock now, Simon, but Simon means God has heard my prayer that one day you will be a rock. God called Peter when he was messed up. Hallelujah, God called me when I was messed up. Check it out, God calls you when you're messed up. We don't wait until we're ready to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and Jesus makes us ready. Amen? That's what has to happen. You don't wait to get your life in order before you come to Christ. You've got to come to Christ for Him to get your life in order. And so, if God calls all these people when they're messed up, Uh, We need to remember that, that God calls other people into the church when they're messed up. Stop expecting people to be perfect when they come into the church. Stop expecting and putting these burdens on people the second they're baptized. Let them grow in Jesus. Be there. Love them. Don't, you know, why are you surprised when they mess up? Jesus wasn't surprised when you messed up. Be patient. You know what? Why not when people mess up, instead of talking about them, I got an idea, church. Why not pray for them? Maybe we can start staying up, standing together. Uh, Peter says, "Why why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Do you believe Peter really meant that? Yeah, Peter meant that. Peter meant it. He was sincere, just as you've been sincere, and I've been sincere when I was a young man. I'll never do drugs. I'll never smoke cigarettes. I'll never do that. I sincerely, you know, while I would never do that. Peter sincerely felt that way. He sincerely wanted to stand, but Peter lacked the power Okay? Peter was following Jesus at a distance. Let me tell you, if you want to stand up for God, you cannot keep Jesus at a distance. You cannot keep Jesus at an arm's length. Let me tell you, when you keep Jesus at a distance, it will always turn into a denial. Always. All right? But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he said to him, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Simon Peter means God has heard my prayer for a rock. And now you know why Acts 2, why Acts 1.15 is so important. Because it says, eventually... Peter stood up. Now you know why Acts 2.14 is so significant. But Peter's standing with the eleven. And that gives me hope, man. That should give you hope. That although maybe my family member is drinking today, hallelujah, they can be sober tomorrow. That although, that all, you may still be battling with that sin today, that God wants to give you victory tomorrow. You may be lonely today. You're going to be consoled tomorrow. You may be hurting today. You will be, you will be healed tomorrow. You may be broken and sick today. I believe God's going to put his hand on you tomorrow. That though I may, I may be empty, broken and falling today, I can be filled, restored and standing tomorrow. Hallelujah. Because you see, Peter is proof. Peter is proof that you can go from consistently messing up to consistently standing for Jesus. I have been a Simon for much of my life. But hallelujah, Simon means God has heard. I can be a rock and I can stand up. Check it out, John 14, 1-3, Jesus tells His disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. You know, this is an Adventist text, if there ever was one. You know, we grew up, this was the first memory text I ever learned. This is is an Adventist text, and and I thought I knew this one backwards and forwards, but but, but not too long ago I was reading through a new Bible set that I got. It's called Bibliotheca. And Bibliotheca has done something really cool. It's a multi-volume Bible set, and what they did is they took out the chapter and verse demarcation. Because you do know that the original Greek and Hebrew did not have chapter and verse demarcation. Okay, it didn't have the grammar. And so what Bibliotheca did, and the and, and chapter and verse is good for Bible study, but what it's done to mess up our view of Scripture is, is it, it, it makes us compartmentalize the Bible. You know, you'll read a text and you won't get the bigger picture. Okay, the Bible wasn't written to be a bunch of just uh, sayings that are to inspire you the way we read the Bible. The Bible was written as one big narrative. It's one big arching story. It's the story of the everlasting gospel. And so you read the Bible in that context. And so that's what Bibliotheca and Crossway ESV, they also have a set, if you're interested, where they've done that, where you read the Bible, you pick it up, and you just read it more like a book. And I was reading this text, this text, and, and, and something just hit me that I had never seen before. What is so awesome about John 14, the let not your heart be troubled, what's so cool about it, that I had always missed that connection, is that immediately before this, is Peter's denial. So we, we usually miss the connection because the let not your heart be troubled begins a new chapter and that's where we start it. That's where we memorize it. That's John 14. It starts there. And so often we read a chapter and we stop. But when you keep reading it, you realize Jesus never stopped talking. When you read chapter 14 in its proper context, it doesn't start a new idea. It's a continuation from verse 13. Well, what happened in verse 13? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And what's cool is the very next words out of Jesus' mouth is let not your hearts be troubled. I mean, let not your heart be troubled is powerful by itself. I mean, it's a powerful statement when you just read it, but it's much more powerful in its proper context. When you realize Jesus has just told one of His number one disciples who, that, that you're going you're gonna to fail me, but He immediately follows that up with, I, I will not fail you. You are going to fall short, but I will not fall short. Right after Jesus tells Peter, you're going to mess up, He says, but Peter, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus did not say, let not your heart be troubled, to a bunch of well-adjusted Seventh-day Adventists. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, to a bunch of broken, beaten down people. James and John have bad tempers. They're called the sons of thunder. They prayed down fire to take out an entire town. We've got, we've got Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was an embezzler. You got Simon the zealot. Zealots were terrorists. You got Thomas. Thomas had trust issues. You got Nathaniel. Nathaniel was a racist. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because Jesus didn't say He was going to prepare a place for people who deserve a place. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for broken people like these disciples and people like Richie Halverson. Hallelujah. Praise God. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for a broken people. And that should be good news if you think you're a broken person. You see, not a single one of us deserves heaven. Amen? Amen? Not a single one of us deserves heaven. But the fact that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and me is proof that Jesus believes that I can make it. The fact that He prepares a place for me, knowing all of the mess-ups I'm going to make, man, that fills my heart with hope. Jesus believes in you, even if you don't believe in you. Jesus became homeless. And that's what's so powerful about the verse, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know what's so powerful about that? It's because we currently don't have a place. Jesus became homeless in order to give us a home. Jesus was displaced so that He could give you and me a place. Jesus was broken so that you and I could be fixed today. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief so that you and I will one day have no more sorrow and no more grief. In Acts chapter 2, Peter delivers one of the most powerful sermons in Scripture. Think about that. The same guy who denied Jesus is now declaring Jesus. The same guy who was always falling apart is now standing tall. So what made the difference? Well, they went back to the upper room where they were staying. We know that. Verse 14 says they become of one accord. You know why they were finally of one accord? The cross had just eliminated any illusions. They were better than anyone else. You know what? Calvary should eliminate any of your illusions. You're better than anyone else. Jesus had to die for the third generation Adventist as much as He had to die for the guy who lives out under the bridge. Jesus had to die for, for I don't care if you're the president or you're a pauper. I don't care who you are, if you're poor or rich. Jesus, you had so much sin in your life, whether it was the sin of pride or the sin of debauchery, and Jesus had to die for you. The cross should strip us of any illusions we're better than anyone else. And so by being brought low, Jesus has raised us up. Through death, New life comes. Giving up the I. Emptying Himself of itself. As Jesus did on Calvary, our life is filled up like never before. Don't you see? The sign of the cross represents the letter I. Crossed out. Hallelujah. That's what the cross symbolizes. There is no room for I at Calvary. There is no room in our churches for I. The cross has crossed out the I. And so in the upper room, the cross cut through the eye of the disciples. It's no longer about what they want. Now it's about what does the Savior want? What does the Savior want? And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. We're, gonna, we're, we're, we're coming to a conclusion here. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they were filled with what? This is what changed Peter from a sinking sinner to a stand-up Christian. Instead of depending on himself, Peter starts depending on God. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you how long? Church, why would Jesus give us a helper forever if He expected us to at some point do it on our own? The most ridiculous heresy that came into our church is when we started telling people they're going to have to stand on their own strength and their own merits. Let me tell you, it is not anywhere in this book from Genesis unto Revelation. If you did not have Jesus interceding for you for one second, you would not be able to survive one second. But hallelujah, we have a Savior that lives to intercede for us. Why would Jesus give us a helper forever if He thought at some point we could do it alone? No, the fact is, He knew we can't. And that's why He sent the Holy Spirit, the helper. Romans 5.2 Through Jesus, we have attained access by faith into His grace in which we what? Stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Early in rec- recovery, I had relapsed, I had relapsed so many times, I had messed up so many times, I was afraid I had not hit my bottom yet. You know, in recovery, you always hear that saying, I hit my bottom, I hit my bottom, I hit my bottom. I had heard that so many times. I remember going up to my sponsor, the Harley Davidson driver, Marvin, and I said, Marvin, I can't live through another relapse. How do I know? I've hit my bottom. Because you see, my bottoms had bottoms and my bottoms' bottoms had bottoms. I, kept, I had more bottoms than I thought any person could have. And so I was worried and then I went to him and I was, I was in tears. I said, Marvin, how do I know I've hit my bottom? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He looks to me and with, a, with a smile as though I've been there. And he said, Richie, he says your bottom happens when you finally just put down the shovel and stop digging. Simon Peter, God has heard my prayer for a rock, and the answer to that is the true rock of ages, Jesus Christ. Have you hit rock bottom? Hallelujah, Jesus is the rock at the bottom who's going to pick you up and turn you around and set your feet on solid ground. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, our our only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. He's talking to the people that he had denied Christ to. The same people he had fallen to, he stands up to. The God he had failed before, he stands up for. Because of the cross, Peter saw Jesus stand up for him. When no one in their right mind would have stood up for Peter, Jesus stood up for him. Don't you see? On Calvary, Jesus stood up for you because you couldn't stand up for yourself. And one day when the devil says, Richie, you can't let him in heaven uh, because of all the times he's fallen. Uh, I, I, I can see it now. Jesus is going to say, Richie who? I just see my son overcomer. I just see my child, my perfect child, blameless in my robe of righteousness. Let us pray. Father, we thank You. We praise You for the awesome God that You are. For all that You have done and all that You are doing. Lord, I am so thankful that although we may be falling today, we can be standing tomorrow. That maybe we're broken today. Uh, we can be filled tomorrow, Lord. We may, we may feel lonely today. Don't let us give up five minutes before the miracle. If my life is proof of anything, it's that God can take the most broken of people and use them to the glory of God. God does not call the qualified. God qualifies the called. And I thank You for that beautiful reality. I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here today. I pray for their families. I pray for their marriages. I pray for their children. I pray for their loved ones. I pray that the Spirit, the Hound of Heaven, the Shepherd will pursue all of our lost sheep, our lost coins, our lost children to the uttermost. Lord, we thank You. We praise You. I know that we will see many miracles as a result of this prayer today and this revival here this week and we thank you and praise you in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Remember